Praise God. One, two, three, four. Test, 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 test. Little loud. Okay. All right. Well, we'll dismiss our young people. Well, I guess they're already going. Man, they've already got the cue. Well, <clears throat> you know, we are living in some interesting times. And how many of you know when things are shaking, that means God's up to something. Amen? It's not a time to recline or pull back or to, the Bible says in Hebrews 10, he says that the just shall live by fear. Oops. By what? Faith. And we are not, Hebrews says, we are not those who fall back, go back into perdition, or we don't go back into a place of doubt or double-mindedness. But we believe God. Amen? I'm on a series on why we believe. And, you know, you know, it's easy to believe God when everything's going well your way, isn't it? I want to kind of open up with a little story. Years ago, <clears throat> my dad and my mother... I love them to this day, and I, it's going to sound strange what I'm going to say, but they deceived me. They actually made my brother and I believe in Santa Claus. When I was a little kid, and my dad loved... Here's the reason why. They love to give gifts. My folks love to give gifts. <clears throat> and do you know what? When you're a believer, you know, my brother and I, we would count from 90 days till Christmas. I mean, we, we were counting on Christmas way before Halloween started. And my folks and my grandfolks <clears throat> were letting us know that Santa's on his way. And uh, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we, uh, my brother and I, we, we were just wired for that. Now, we knew it was still a ways away, but especially in the last few weeks, it really began to uh, hit us. We, we couldn't sleep at night. We were anticipating. Uh, we wanted to help decorate the tree, put everything and decorate the house. How many of you do that at Christmas time? You do that at your house? Now, uh, some of you may not get so excited because you get to pay the, uh, the bill. But uh, when we were young... <clears throat> My folks uh, would go all out to let us know about Santa. And, and I, I told the story many times how my dad one time, we were on Taylor's Ferry Road in Portland, Oregon. It was a little bit of snow coming out of the sky. And it was literally Christmas Eve. And my mother didn't have a fireplace at that time. So my mom said, go into the bedroom because Santa's coming. And I said, how can Santa come if we have no chimney? Because Santa has to go down a chimney, doesn't he? And my mother said, yeah, that's a problem, but he thinks of other ways to do it. But still go in the bedroom. So I, we remember going into the bedroom, and we were believers. My brother and I, we were believing in this uh, thing. And I remember my dad got on a ladder on the roof, and we could hear boom, 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 boom. And he would yell, ho, 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 ho. And my brother and I, we were just freaking out. And I, I was standing at the door. I said, Mom, let me go out and meet Santa. She said, you don't. If you do, he'll fly away. 
You have to stay in the house. <clears throat> because remember the old saying, you know, you better not pout, you better not shout. You know, if, you, if you're good and you're not bad, and Santa will come. It was completely based on the, the law, by the way, the keeping of the law. By the way, if you don't know that song, I'm not singing it too well. But uh, I remember one, that one night, it was the first time we got a dachshund, my, and, I, and my, my mom said that uh, Santa Claus is bringing you a really special gift this Christmas, it's a little dash hound. And I said, well, how can a dash hound fit in a sleigh? Is he part of the, the group leading with red no, you know, uh, Rudolph the Red Nose? And I, I mean, I had all these questions. I remember my mother turned to me and said, Ray, don't ask so many questions. Just Santa's coming. Believe it. You know, you don't have to ask all these questions. I don't know how he's got the dash hound stuffed in his. I mean, I, I just, how does that happen? You know, she's just, just believe it. Okay, well, I knew it was coming because we remember the previous Christmases. Santa Claus brought us Christmas presents. And, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, that night, I'll never forget, uh, my dad's doing the whole, whole thing on the roof, and all of a sudden you hear this kerplunk boom. And then I hear this bing, 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 bing. And then outside, my dad says, Pat, will you get out here, please? And that's my mother's name, Pat. Pat, will, will you get out here? And I'm thinking, Mom, what's, go, what's Dad doing? Well, he was out meeting Santa. So she goes out, and my dad comes in, and he's all got his left knee bruised up and all that. And Anyway, we still believe we had Christmas. And, but here's, here's the interesting shock. About a couple of years later, we begin to ask too many questions. And my mother said, Ray and Ron, I want you to know that uh, there's no such thing as Santa Claus. And we were about five, six, seven years of age at this time. And I remember, literally, I just started crying. I said, Santa does exist. Don't tell me Santa's not real. It's got to be real. I was weeping and crying. And I said, Santa, he's there. He's coming. I know he always comes. He might even fall off a roof, but he's coming. And I mean, I was like losing it. And my mother said, look, Ray, 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 Ray. Santa, it's just a, it's just a fairy tale. He's not coming. And I remember just like losing it, falling apart. And I will never, I'll never forget, there was this little bit of a shift in my attitude. When Christmas would come around, Years later, we still got presents, but I wasn't as, 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 as excited as I used to be because all of a sudden, I begin to believe Santa's not real. It doesn't happen. Well, we know what Santa, now I get it. I was the fool. I got it. I'm the fool. Dad, you're Santa Claus. And I remember my attitude and my, my thoughts you know, and of course, as I begin to grow older, I begin to make fun of other kids. And I'd say, you know what? Santa's not real. I learned the hard way. I've got the scars to prove it in my soul. I've been wounded. They let me know. They were lying all these. I mean, I, I, I used to love to tell little kids, you know what? That Santa Claus is not real. I am, oh yeah, I did it. I did it. I told little kids, little kids, and the Santa Claus was real. Mommy, that mean boy, that is not real. 
And, you know, I, I love to tell them. I hate to say it, but that was cool and mean. I know it. But I was a wounded, dysfunctional 7th grade or 6th grade or whatever I was at the time. But what I said all that for is that, you know, sometimes even when it comes to the gospel, now we're shifting gears here, sometimes we have been told that, you know what, miracles are not for today. That's just happened 2000. Jesus really doesn't come through for you. And you know what it does? It just throws a blanket on the faith of people. One of the things that we need to begin, how many of you believe God really wants to stir up our imagination, stir up our heart? He wants us to realize that He is God of miracles and He still works miracles today. Now, faith is not like believing in Santa Claus. I don't want to say it that way. But faith is based upon some important very important, substantial truths. First of all, can we turn to a couple of scriptures on up here on the overhead for a minute? Why we believe, and we're going to be looking at John 3 here in a minute, but why, why do we believe? When it comes to belief, do you know that advertisers every week through multimedia are seeking to get you to buy a product. How many here have ever gotten phone calls from scammers on your cell phone? People will call. They're trying to get you to buy something all the time. Well, you know what they want to do. They want you to get, before they can get you to buy anything, they need to get you to believe in them. They need to get you to believe in it. And how does, how does anybody get you to believe in anything? Go ahead. Yell it out. How, do, how does anybody get you to believe in anything? Guilt? Oh, yeah, that may be one. But, but they've got they're to move your emotions, don't they? How many here have ever tried to go on a weight loss program and all of a sudden you notice all the uh, Big Mac burger commercials? And uh, have, have you noticed that when you're trying to lose weight or you're on a fast, that you noticed all the c- commercials that they, they have these grease oozing commercials where the grease is oozing out of the burgers and of course, they always try to make it look like it's healthy, but in the melted cheese and the onions, man, that's even make me hungry right now. But, but the objective is to connect with your head, your mind, and your emotions. Because you see, people that are advertising know, that, as we all do, we all need to eat. We do need to eat. But what they're trying to do is make a sale, and even if that sale means that they're going to try to sell you on something, that is, they've got to make something that even is bad for you to look good. They've got to, they've got to sell you. They've got to appeal to you. And so we, we know that that's, that's the way the world works. Satan in the Garden of Eden was able to turn Eve and Adam together by appealing to something, listen to me, by appealing, Satan was appealing to Eve in the area of her sense of identity. By making Eve or Adam, even, even Adam, to believe that if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be as God. Well, Eve obviously forgot that she was already created in the image of God. Completely forgot about that. 
So she, he, he twisted something. He took the truth, twisted it, and then he began to make God look like he is not there to meet your need. Started in the Garden of Eden. If somehow the devil can get you to believe, one of the reasons why we have a lot of people that don't believe in God, it's not that they've heard, uh, well, it's not just because they hear a lot about the devil, but it's because they have bought into a lie that God really will not meet your need. That's how he plants the seeds of unbelief. Or you go through a problem or a crisis, or you go through something and you find yourself in a place where you say, God, where were you? Where, where are you? And all of a sudden you begin to have these things, we kind of add them up in our mind. The devil begins to say, see, God didn't, God didn't get you that job, or God didn't get you that issue, or maybe you start comparing yourself with others. Look, look how others are prospering, but you're not. Obviously God has let you down. And so what we don't even realize is day after day, We're going through these seasons in our life where we begin to question the very nature and the very character. How many of you believe that the real battle, which is in our mind, that's the battleground, the devil wants us to believe that God will not work for you or that he will not be faithful to you. That's that's his objective. And then what, what happens is when that begins to take place, we begin to have an attitude where we begin to drift. And when you are drifting, guess what? You'll begin to come to your Bible. Well, you know, I don't get anything out of this Bible. Why, why even go to church? It's, it's the same old thing, the same old, same old every Sunday. See, that's a person who has an issue with really telling God, Lord, you, you better do what you said you would do. And I expect, you know, sometimes people don't realize is that, when Jesus went into the synagogues, he not only taught, but there were miracles and there were healings and there were baptisms, a lot of things happening. But, but there were also seasons where God was teaching them to trust him. There were teach because let me tell you something, a dry season is not intended to be a bad season. It's intended to draw you closer to him. God's never intending to let, leave you out to dry. He doesn't do that. How many of you believe that God stands at the door every day of our heart, and he knocks. He wants to bring a greater understanding and expectation. And so one of the things, when it comes to believing God, there, there really needs to be a, a, an alignment to what his word says. And let's jump to the first verse of Scripture here, a very important passage. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Jesus. Amen? Now, it says that it comes by hearing, but how many of you know you can have defective hearing? If I don't hear right, or if there's a lot of obstacles in my life, the devil wants to block your ability to hear. But faith comes. If we go to the next scripture, faith comes. Well, what do I need to hear? How how does that work? Paul says, for this reason, I suffer things in my life. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed I'm not distracted. I'm not turned aside, for I know who I have believed. He didn't say, for I know what, or I know it. He says, I know who. Because faith works by love. 
It's on the basis of love. It's not on the basis of circumstances. I know Him. In whom I have believed, and I am, here's the key word, persuaded. Everyone say persuaded. If you are not persuaded, because it's persuasion that draws you to believe. If you don't have a persuasion, if you've not heard the goodness and the nature of God, then you will not believe that. I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him. Amen. Until that, that day or that day of fulfillment. Are we okay? <laughs> so he said that belief comes as we are persuaded that he is able to keep. Amen. Now this is important. I want to give you three real quick things why we are persuaded. Number one, simply the word of God works. It actually works. Even if you're not a Christian. The Bible in the principles and the truths actually work, even ungodly people, whether it's in the area of wealth, whether it's in the area of stewardship or serving, serving, God's word actually works. In other words, when you when you begin for instance, if you're a person that you know how to steward your money well, you know how to give to others. Guess what? A man who gives, it will be given back to him, pressed down, shaken together, running out all over. That's a principle that's eternal. If you learn how to honor people, it's going to come back to you. If you walk with wisdom, there's, I love the passages in Proverbs. It says, a man who knows how to control his mouth will stand before kings. Those are principles that work. It also says that a blabbermouth and a loudmouth, a man, will fall into the pit of fools. And they will not be heard. Because Have you ever been around somebody like, they just can't keep their mouth shut. They talk too much. The principles of God's word actually works. The second thing about God's word, and this is why I believe, why we believe, is because God's word actually transforms. It transforms your life. The Bible says the path of the just shines more and more. How many here have ever found in your Christian life that the quality of your life has improved because you're following Christ? I mean, really true. If you follow God's ways and you follow Jesus, and one of the things you'll find that as you begin to walk in the light as he's in the light, you walk in integrity, you walk in honor, you walk in transparency, you, you begin to sow healthy seeds, you sow healthy thoughts. I love Psalms 1. It says, the man who's blessed, where his, his leaves will not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper, is because that man is like a tree planted by the waters, and it's because of this. It says in Psalms 1, verse 2, because he gives his mind to meditation day and night in the word of the Lord. The Bible says that when you obey these commandments, Deuteronomy 28, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. How many of you would like that in your life? See, God's Word actually transforms your life, improves the quality of your life. But however, sometimes we get disillusioned because we don't see immediate success. 
I remember when the Lord began to give me a promise that he was going to bless my business. And I began to follow the Lord. And Carol and I, we, we, we begin to make some serious pledges towards a mission and a building program at our local church. And I remember when I started business, so first the Lord gave me a promise. Then I went through this wilderness time. And guess what happened? In the wilderness, things got worse in the circumstances of my life. Listen to me. Things begin to get worse before they got better. Because God was teaching me how to steward my time, how to plan, how to work. I had to do some homework. Everyone say homework. See, believing is not just sitting around, okay, Lord, I got a few promises. I'm waiting for God up there to do something for me. doesn't work like that. You've got to actually study. You're going to have to actually work. Do you know the Lord even actually allowed me to work with some clients that ripped me off? And I said, Lord, that's not fair. But he says, Ray, I'm going to give you some treasures in darkness that is not, has nothing to do with financial blessing, but in the long run. The, in fact, you know, the greatest blessing you can have, and Solomon brings this out, is wisdom. He says, in all you're getting, get wisdom, get understanding, for she, she uses it in the feminine, she will exalt you, she will promote you, she will cause you to stand before kings. But how does wisdom come? Through problems. Working with some crooked people. Yay, Jesus. Now you may say, well, Pastor Ray, I didn't sign up for that kind of a thing. Well, listen to me. If you really want to prosper and grow, look at the life of Joseph. Look at David. God tells David, David, a young man, you're going to be the next king. You're going to be awesome. You're going to slay giants. And then God puts him under a king who tries to kill him. How many of you know that sometimes the pathway, the blessing, and the promise involves contradiction? Are we all here today? Amen. Sometimes it involves going through betrayal. Sometimes it goes through the seasons of where no one else is. Yet it was in those seasons that he writes some of the most powerful psalms. It was in that season that he began to make a shift in the way he was understanding. For instance, when he slew the lion and the bear. Who? Who in the world? Whatever, by the way, do you know, if you, want, if you ever want to see your day come where God begins to use you, listen to me, you're going to have to get to the point where you can pick up five smooth stones and look at a nine-foot giant and say, you're coming down. And it's not because he just picked up five rocks. It's because David learned to trust God in seasons of contradiction. Where he could look at the giant because those five small stones weren't just five rocks out of a riverbed. Those five rocks were rocks that had to do with some difficult, hard experiences that he went through in his youth. That he learned to come out and said, God is going to bring this thing down. Because what I hold in my hand isn't just a rock. It's wisdom. There's power. There's an experience. And so when he goes out there to confront Goliath, he believed God with what he had that in the minds of others that live by their mind or logic or reason would say it's foolish. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? 
See, sometimes we don't understand why, why God doesn't bring things about. Well, God has you in a season where he's teaching you and preparing you for greatness. Joseph, God gives him a dream. I'm sure he wished we could have kept his mouth shut. Gives him a dream about the sheaves and, and the stars. And he tells his brother, and the first thing he does is when he tells his brothers about what was going on, like Paul here says, he suffered these things. And as Joseph was suffering these things, God was actually preparing him to stand before Pharaoh. And the Bible says that Joseph said concerning Pharaoh, he says, God has called me to, me to be a father to Pharaoh. Here's this young man, and yet Pharaoh looked at Joseph as a father. All of us go through these seasons. But this part of building in our lives and preparing us for an up-and-coming day. When, when Paul here says that I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until what day? It's not the day of judgment. It's the day of fulfillment. God's got a day. Everyone say, I have a day. God has a day. Now, part of my belief, part of my process, part of my journey is learning to stay on the track. Don't get off track. Amen. Next scripture, if we go to the next scripture. For John 1, 17, or 14 says, In the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was gone. Down verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And this is what's so important. This is part of the promise. And dwells among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of only the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness we have all received. And this is so important. We receive it. And we need to walk in that grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace. And what that grace is, is that grace is a God-given anointing and insight. Bible says this, that more grace comes through two ways. Number one, humility. And grace comes through weakness. If you're weak today, guess what? Grace is flowing through you. But I have to choose to receive grace and say, Lord, what's coming my way is part of the preparation for what's coming ahead for that day. That day. And then he says, no one has seen God at any time, only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Amen. Can you say amen? The, the, the third thing, not only does God's Word work and it transforms, but the last thing here is we find that God's Word is what reveals the Father to us, the very nature and the character of God. Our faith is based upon the beauty of who Jesus showed us to see, and that was our Heavenly Father. You know, if, if you're simply in love with a religion, then you're, you're going to have a wavering faith. But because faith has to work by love, because you're created. I, you and I are created to have a relationship. We can have a relationship, even in a very dark, very dark time. I want you to jump over with me into John's Gospel, chapter 3. I've only got a few minutes to read some things here, but I want to take you into a man's life who was really struggling in his mind concerning his own belief. Very familiar passage, and it's the account of Nicodemus with Jesus. Notice this, verse 1, John 3, verse 1. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and notice, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a ruler. 
This man was a scholar. This guy today would be a, a man who would understand the theology, the history of antiquity and, and the history of the Jewish people. He was a ruler of Pharisees. He comes to Jesus by night. Notice he's kind of embarrassed. He's not really sure what to say about this man, Jesus. He comes and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Now, this is a real struggle here. Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, says, we know that you come from God. But publicly, he would not say that. But he comes to Jesus by night and says, we know. And then he says, because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And then Jesus says something. Listen, I'm glad you see the signs and the wonders and the miracles. But if the signs and the wonders and the miracles don't lead you to me, then it's, it's been no good. Let me say that again. Signs and wonders and miracles are not the end of what God's trying to do in the earth today. Signs and wonders and miracles is not the end. Some people think, well, I, I got to find a church where it's a signs, wonders, and miracles. No, if that's what you're looking for, they're all over the place. What Jesus is after is repentance. In fact, you'll go back into John 13, or Luke 13. It says that Jesus went through Tyre, Sidon, and Capernaum. It says where he did many mighty works. And he says he came back the second time. Read it. It says he began to rebuke the cities because they did not repent. The goal of signs, wonders, and miracles is not just to have a big show. So people go, oh, 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 I'm blessed. Whoa. I remember, I'll never forget this. Oral Roberts did a survey years ago. I heard this. It was on television. He, he said this through the 50s when they had these healing revivals and movements. By the way, I'm all for miracles. And we need to, we need to expect miracles every day, by the way. Expect it. I'm not in any way trying to put that down. We need to expect it, but that's not the end of what God's doing. It is some, it, signs and wonders are to point us to Christ. And that's why Nicodemus is saying, listen, your signs and wonders are bringing us to ask you some questions. And Oral Roberts years ago said, you know what? He said they had these amazing packed out tent meetings. They went back and they tracked a lot of the people down that miracles had been done. People had ears healed, noses healed, uh, creative miracles, amazing. And he said, now this is his statistic, about 60% of the people they could find were not serving God years later. They had notable miracles, but they had not continued to follow the Lord. Just because you have a... By the way, do you know that a miracle on your life does not mean that you're saved? Just because God does a miracle and you might have believed God for a miracle doesn't mean that you've come into a living faith where he is Lord of your life. Do you know that Jesus, when he did miracles, for instance, Jesus did miracles simply because he wanted people to know that there's a Father in heaven that loves them and cares and is willing to break every yoke on their life. But that does not mean that they were born again. 
There is living faith and then there's saving faith. Saving faith means that I'm actually putting my life in Jesus' hands and I'm trusting Him in such a way that I am following Him, I'm serving Him, I've come to carry my cross, and I've come to become just like Him. The purpose of the miracle was to get our attention, but the ultimate goal was to bring all of us into the image and the likeness of our Heavenly Father and where we are separated and cut off from the world and where we are like Jesus. That's the goal of the gospel. Now notice what happens here in this passage. Uh, Nicodemus asks the question, we know, we know you come from God. He's a believer. But what he believes is, is miracles. And Jesus said, and, he, and believed that Jesus was the Lord too, that, that he came from God. But he didn't acknowledge him as Lord. He just says, we know that you come from God. Because nobody could do this unless God is with him. But then Jesus said unto him, Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't, Jesus didn't say, unless one has been in a miracle working healing service. Not what he said. He said, unless one is born Again, you cannot... Now, there are four mysteries in John 3. We're not going to get to it for time. The first mystery is the mystery of the spiritual birth. The next mystery is the mystery of wind. The next mystery is down in verse 18, where Jesus is referring to the lifted serpent. And the last mystery in John 3 is the mystery of light. Jesus is explaining to this religious theologian what it is to understand relationship and encounter with God. Because here he says, unless a man is born again, you cannot see. Nicodemus comes back with a logical question. How can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, the kingdom of God isn't just heaven. The kingdom of God is the life, the power, and the fellowship, and the rule of God in this life on earth. God's kingdom here on earth. That's what Jesus is referring to. That which is born of flesh... That which is given over to the flesh and those who will just live after the mind of the flesh is flesh and it comes to nothing is what he's saying. That which is flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes. You can hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes and where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus here, the first mystery here is where Jesus said a man must be born again. There's a four-step process in the spiritual birth. First of all, there's conception. Do you know that being, being, having, conceiving the Word does not mean you're born again? In fact, just because a sperm and an egg meet does not mean birth. It just means conception. How many of you know there's a lot of people today that hear the word of God, but they're still not born again? 
See, you can conceive, a woman can conceive, but that doesn't mean she's given birth. Because the next phase after conception is development. After development, then there's labor. After labor, there's birthing. Jesus said a man cannot see the kingdom. That means you cannot comprehend. You're not going, he's not talking about seeing with physical eyes. Jesus is talking about seeing with the inner eye of the spirit. No one can see or comprehend this unless they're born again. Now the word born again is the Greek word taken, which means to be born from above. And it literally means in the Greek to be wakened. Turn to your neighbor and say, would you wake up, please? Praise God. That's what it means. When a baby is born, it comes into an awareness. It it literally means to wake up. It also means in the Greek, it means breathe upon to. Wow, I'm seeing things differently. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. The leper came to Jesus when Jesus came down from the mount one day and he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. See, this man was seeing not with natural eyes, not with feelings, but he was seeing from a spiritual awakening. He had heard that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the one not only comes to save us and to heal us, but to restore us back into fellowship. That's why this man was moved to draw near to Jesus. And he was moved beyond the contradiction and beyond all the challenges in his mind because lepers were supposed to be restricted. They were to abstain from the crowd. They were to keep themselves from other people and other crowd members because leprosy was contagious. So the leper, when he hears what Jesus is and who he is and where he's come from and what his purpose is, this man just rises up in faith. And in spite of his physical issues, he actually just doesn't care what other people think. How many here have ever come to church because your hair wasn't good enough? You see, when you've been wakened by the Spirit, you don't really care what other people... I'm coming here because I know I serve a God, and what He thinks about me is more important than what you think about me, and I'm here to worship Him. That means you've been, you've been wakened. To be wakened means that there's something that's powerful that is so deep in your spirit that's motivating and moving you because you know how good, how gracious, how honorable, how, fa- how abundant He is. Now, I I want you to see, keep your finger in John 3, but jump over to Ephesians chapter 2. How does someone rise up? How do they come alive? This is the answer to this first mystery. It says, in you he has made alive. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in trespasses in your sins. That means you were completely void of the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. It literally means this. You don't care about living a sinful life. It means that you absolutely are completely void of the Spirit of God concerning His will, His purpose in your life. All you're doing is living for what pleases man. That's living according to the flesh. I'll do what I want when I want to. And he says, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It means there's a demonic stronghold, a prince that is directing your thoughts, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we've all had once conducted ourselves in the lusts 
Word there means desires or strong desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. That means to be children that feel hostile against God. Have you ever talked to, tried to talk to somebody about the Lord and they feel hostile? There's a hostility. I don't want God. I don't need Jesus. I'm doing just fine. I'm, I'm fine. That means there, there's a hostility. What puts that hostility in their life? The enemy. How many of you know he comes to plant wrong thoughts? And how does he do that? By giving us the lie that if you do it your way, you'll be happier. If you do it and you follow your own path, you'll be happier. But it says we were fulfilling the desires by nature, wrath, the children of wrath as others. But I love verse 4. But God. <laughs> I love this. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, we were in sin, we were in rebellion, running from God like Jonah. We were resisting the Holy Spirit. We were doing our thing. We thought we were finding happiness, only it was leading us to emptiness. It says, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is, made us alive. Now see, here's, here's the problem back. It, it also made us alive and by grace we have saved and it raised us, raised us. What raised us? What made of us alive? You know what it was? Mercy. It was the mercy of God. Bible said, Paul says it was mercy and his great love that makes us alive. You know what it does? It elevates. It promotes. It brings you to a place not only where you're cleansed and healed, but he restores you and puts you into a place of honor and dominion over your sin. And he makes you holy. Everyone say, I'm holy. You may say, well, pastor, that's a kind. I'm not holy. I've been doing some unholy things this past week. Well, you know what? It's because your mind and your soul has not been restored to the place of where your spiritual man is. Because God sees you not only cleansed and forgiven, but you're holy, you're righteous, you're blessed. You have dominion over sin, but you just haven't arrived yet. Be, see, you're, you're in between the conception stage in that birthing stage, and you're in that development. Now, let me tell you something. How many of you know that every conceived seed can abort? You can miscarry. You can hear the Word of God, and then you can spit it out. You can hear the Word of God and give up on it. Now, it's not by works, but it says, He hath raised us up, made us alive, and seated us together with Him. Back in John chapter 3. Jump with me back to John 3. Now, here's, here's the thing about Nicodemus and the Pharisees and all the religious guys. The religious people lived by being good people. They thought, if, if I'm a good Texan, a, they didn't have Texans over there. If I'm a good Samaritan, if I'm a good Jew, if I'm a tax-paying Jew, if I keep all my camels in order and my camels under their little carports and I'm a nice little honorable little citizen keeping and paying taxes and doing the good thing, I'm not a robber, I'm not going out killing and hurting people, I'm a good citizen. I tell the truth. I vote. 
I go to church every week. See, Nicodemus thought by being good on the outside that made him saved on the inside. And Jesus was saying, no, you have to be born because being born of water and spirit is the key here. Because being born of water means to be immersed. In other words, Jesus was talking about a change that must come from the inside. It's not good enough to be good enough on the outside. It's not good enough to just be a, a nice, good old Republican or Democratic Texan who loves barbecue, who keeps all your lawns mowed and your family. Well, I, I'm a good person. Jesus should obviously honor because I'm a good citizen. I give my body to be burned. I help a lot of people. I give to a lot of charity. I am a good person. But if you haven't had a conversion on the inside, you're not born again. You see, how many of you know the deception of being good enough is that you can tend to keep an account of all the little good things you do, but your belief system is wrong based upon the merits and the works that you keep. And you kind of keep a tally. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, to be born from above means to be born within where you now begin to see Jesus as king. One of the ways we know we're born again is when we, the Bible says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. I'm, I need to come to recognize that it's not my works of righteousness, but it's by his grace I'm saved. I need to be saved from the inside out. I need to be healed on the inside. And boy, Matthew 23 is a powerful passage where Jesus begins to say some things. Wow, it's amazing. By the way, the Pharisees were the, the known priests and teachers and feeders and pastors of their day in, in the Gospels. But you know what one thing Jesus said that just blows me away when I read this? In the first part, first four verses in Matthew 23. I'm not going to turn there. But Jesus said this, and he turns to his disciples and he says this. Now, this, this is shocking. Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, do what they say, but don't do as they do. Did you hear that? Jesus said, hear these hypocrites, but don't do as the hypocrites. How would you like to go to a church where your pastor is a hypocrite? And Jesus said, hear what he's saying, but don't do, don't do what he does. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Read it. It's in Matthew 23, verse 3 or 4 or 5. Jesus said, do what they say. Jesus actually didn't say, don't go to those churches because they're full of hypocrites. No, Jesus said, go and listen to them, but don't do what they do. I don't know about you. That, that was a tough one for me. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. See, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. But here, what Jesus is trying to say is that to be born of the water means that we're immersed. To be baptized is not just about getting a little sprinkling and dusting. Jesus is saying, if you're truly born again, that means you have been immersed. And the word immersed there literally means to take a cloth and to dip it in dye. And when it comes out, its color and its complete dimension is changed. To be immersed in Christ means that I've been baptized, identified with Christ in his death. Where I come out, I no longer am the man or woman I used to be. I am now following Jesus, not because I have to. Not because a pastor says so, but because I'm in love with him. I have come to know him. And then Jesus said, to be born of the Spirit. What does that mean, to be born of the Spirit? To be born of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Spirit has been so empowered and imparted into your life that you now begin to desire what is holy. You want to wholly follow Him. And there's a conviction. Not condemnation. There's a conviction. There's boundaries. There's borders in your life. You are a Christian that says, I say no to that. I say yes to that. If you love Jesus, you're not a tolerant individual. You know how to say no. Everyone say no. How many of you would like to have a yes from God? Well, God's watching to see if you'll say no to some things. Remember when Jesus was driven, the Bible says he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus did three times. He had to say no to the devil when he said, you got all this power, turn your stones into some bread. You got all this power, you know, I'll take you up on the top cliff, throw yourself off, the angels will pick you up. Uh, If you're so powerful and almighty, if you bow down, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What was Jesus doing in the wilderness? Saying, no. No, no. See, some of us right now are in a place where God's bringing you through a season and the Lord wants to hear some no's. He wants to hear some no's where, you know what? I'm not going to do what I used to do. My behavior and my thoughts and my attitude is going to ch- I'm going to start saying no to having just a rotten attitude. I'm going to start believing God. I'm going to start believing God. That's what it means to be born of the water and of the Spirit. Jesus was led by the Father. Not my will, but thy will. When Jesus cried in the, uh, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, he says, Abba, Father, Abba. It means, Father, Father, I delight to do your will. It's not just Daddy, Daddy, but Daddy, Daddy, I want to do your will. That's what it means. Not just Daddy, Daddy. Not just Santa Claus, Santa Claus. No, no, Daddy, I want to do your will. If it was possible to take this cup from me, I wish it would, but not my will, but thy will be done. And so Jesus begins to address this. And, and then Nicodemus comes down here and says, Lord, how can this, this happen? And Jesus said, are you a teacher? And you don't even know these things, Nicodemus? Surely I say unto you, we speak the things that we know and we testify what we have seen. And yet you do not receive our witness. Now listen to me. The things that we see and that we know, what you see and what you know, is what's pleasing to Him. Every one of you today have eyes to see and ears to hear. You have eyes to see. And you know why? You know what opens your eyes and opens your ears? Listen to me. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, 2, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. It doesn't say by logic or by reason. It says by faith. Faith in God is what opens your eyes to see things that you cannot. It opens your eyes to the invisible. Amen? I want us to understand that this morning because God wants to open our eyes to a greater power and understanding. Now, when Jesus said this here, that the wind is blowing where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes and where it is going. What Jesus here is speaking about is an environment. It says the wind blows. He's speaking about movement. It's speaking about force. It's speaking about a life. 
When Jesus is talking about the wind, how many of you know that we can't see the wind? All we see is the results of the wind. Same thing with the sound of wind. You can't hear the sound of wind. All you can hear is what the sound does whether against a building or in the trees. But when the wind blows, and what he's talking about here is he's teaching his Nicodemus here how to live by faith. The wind blows where it wishes. God has put some desires in your heart, and he wants you to begin to speak. He wants you to begin to hear things It says this, you hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming, where it's going. How many of you have ever had somebody ask you, why in the world are you doing what you're doing? Why why do you serve God? Why are you keeping yourself? Why don't you just indulge in sin like we all do? Why Why are you believing something that you can't see? Jesus said, the wind blows. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. God has given us a spiritual authority, amen, to hear that sound and to become a driving force in life that's actually going to cause some noise to be made. How many here are ready to make some noise? That's what he's talking about. Where the spirit blows, you hear the sound. Do you know what a New Testament spirit-filled church will do? Well, I will enter his gates with praise. I will enter his courts with thanksgiving. Interesting, in Psalms 100, it says that in the wilderness, God gave Moses on Mount Sinai the pattern for the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was not in Canaan. It was not in some oasis. God gave him the tabernacle, and told the nation that you're a kingdom of priests and kings unto me. Where? In the wilderness. Why in the wilderness? Because God wants you to turn your wilderness into an oasis when you begin to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise because you're kings and priests. That's why I want to get radical. Now, I'm working on my own knees. I, I, if I had... I, I need to be speaking faith. I'm preaching faith here. But I got some sore knees. But I'm going to take my wife and do the do do up here sometime. But it's not to impress you. That's not the point. The purpose of praise is because God inhabits the praises. If you want to see power, if we begin to come with a sense of expectancy, wouldn't it be amazing if you got up on Sunday morning, Saturday night? Ooh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to have this. Sorry, Bill. My fault. Oh, okay. I am delivered. And uh, see, if when I, when I begin, to, Carol and I think like this. We anticipate God moving, miracles, breakthroughs, 
wisdom, healing. We actually pray for this. We pray. And you know what? God answers our prayer. God moves because we believe. We believe. Now, in closing, I want you to jump over with me, and I, I'm, I'll get to the next two mysteries next week, but I want you to jump over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> it says this, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For all things are for your sake. All things. Everyone say all things. Everything you've walked through is for your sake. This is the basis and foundation of faith. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to bound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. For the light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly eternal weight of glory, while we do not look. Listen, folks, here's faith, and this is, this is how we begin to see the kingdom. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. Can you say amen? I want to read just a story. Uh, I really appreciate what C.S. Lewis said here about belief. He says, believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there's such a place as New York. I could not prove it by abstract reasoning, but there is such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary person believes that there is a solar system, atoms, and the circulation of blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement is believed on someone's authority. None of us have ever seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about it, in fact, on authority. A person who balks at authority and other things, as some people do with religion, would have to be content to know nothing at all for the rest of his life. But that was interesting by C.S. Lewis. I want to share this in closing, just a short story about a man who had real serious problems. Uh, I know this man's testimony. He doesn't share it here, but this individual that I'll let you know who he was in a minute, well-known evangelical ministry, but he had been molested for six to seven years by a relative when he was a young man. He's also in our Conqueror series as, a, as a, one of the leaders that he shares. But he said this, when I was a teenager, by the way, he was raised in a Christian home also. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be happy. I wanted my life to have meaning. I become hounded by the three basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here, and where am I going? I started searching for answers. Where I was brought up, everything seemed to be, everything seemed to be into religion, so I thought I might find answers by being religious. I got into church 150%. I went every time the doors were open, morning, afternoon, and evening, but I must have picked up the wrong church because I felt worse inside than, than I did on the outside. From my upbringing on a farm in Michigan, I inherited a rule mindset 
that says that when something doesn't work, get out of it, get rid of it, so therefore I chucked religion. I thought that education then might have the answers to my question, so I enrolled in university, was focusing on a college degree. Faculty members and my fellow students had just as many problems, frustrations, and unanswered questions as I did. Education, I decided also, was not the answer. Now, by the way, he's not suggesting you should not get an education. He was trying to find hope and meaning in life, and he realized it wasn't just having an education. I begin to think maybe I could find happiness and meaning with by, by having certain status or prestige. The thrill of, of prestige wore off like everything else I tried. I, in, I endured Monday through Friday, living only for the weekends to party, drink, get high, and then on Monday, the meaningless cycle would begin all over again. I didn't let, I didn't let on that my life was meaningless. I was too proud for that. Everyone thought that I was the happiest man on campus. They never suspected that my happiness was a sham. It depended on my circumstances. If things were going great for me, I felt great. When things were going lousy, I felt lousy. I just didn't let it show. About that time, I noticed a small group of people, eight students and two faculty members who seemed different from others. They seemed to know who they were, where they were going, and they actually had convictions. It was refreshing to find people with convictions and boundaries. I, I, I like to be around them. I admired them who believe in something and take a stand for it, even if I didn't agree with their beliefs. It was clear to me that these people had something that I didn't have. They were, di they were uh, distinguishedly happy, and their happiness didn't ride up and down with circumstances of university life. It was constant. They appeared to possess an inner source of joy, and I wondered where it came from. A couple weeks later, I sat around a table in the student union talking with some of the members, and then a conversation turned into the topic of God. I was pretty skeptical and insecure about the subject, so I put up a big front, leaned back in my chair, acting like I could care less. Christianity? Ha! Ah, I blustered. That's for unthinking weaklings not for intellectuals like me. Of course, under the bluster, I really wanted what these people had, but my pride didn't want them to know the aching urgency of my need. The subject bothered me, but I couldn't let go of it. So I turned to one of the students and said, tell me, why are you so different from these other students and faculty on the campus? What changed your life? Without hesitation or embarrassment, she looked me straight in the eye, dead serious, and uttered two words, I... I never expected to hear in an intelligent discussion on a university campus, she said, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I snapped. I am fed up with religion. I'm fed up with church. I'm fed up with the Bible. Immediately, she sh shot back and said, I didn't say religion. I said, Jesus she pointed out something that I had never known. Christianity is not just some religious act or form. Religion is humans trying to work their way to God through good works. Christianity is God coming to men and men through Jesus Christ and women through Jesus Christ. Then my few friends issued a challenge I couldn't believe. They challenged me to make a rigorous, uh, intelligent intention and, ex and, uh, and to uh, examine the claims of Jesus Christ. 
that uh, he that he is the son of God that he inhabited a human body, lived among real men and women, that he died on a cross for the sins of humanity, that he was buried and was resurrected three days, and that he still is alive and can change a person's life even today. I accepted their challenge, mostly out of spite, to prove them wrong. I was convinced the Christian story would not stand up to evidence. I was a pre-law student and knew something about evidence. I decided I started with the Bible. I was sure that if I could uncover indisputable evidence that the Bible is an unreliable record, the whole, that all of Christianity would eventually crumble like a house of cards. I took the challenge seriously. I spent months in research. I dropped even out of school for a time to study in the historical rich libraries of Europe. I found evidence Evidence in abundance, evidence that I couldn't even believe with my own eyes. Finally, I could come to only one conclusion. If I were to remain intellectually honest, I had to admit that the Old and the New Testament documents were some of the most reliable writings in all of antiquity. And if they were reliable, what about this man Jesus, who I had dismissed as a mere carpenter? I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter, He was all that he had claimed to be. Not only did my research turn me around intellectually, but it also answered the three questions that started me on a quest for happiness and meaning. You would think that after examining this evidence that I would have immediately jumped on board and become a Christian. My mind was convinced of the truth. I'd have to admit that Jesus Christ must be exactly who he claimed to be. But in spite of this abundant evidence, I still felt strong uh, reluctance to make the plunge. There were two reasons for my reluctance, pleasure and pride. I thought that becoming a Christian would mean giving up the good life and giving up control and especially what my friends would think about me. I was really miserable at this time. I was walking in a battlefield. My mind was telling me that Christianity was true but my will was resisting it with all the energy it could muster. Then there was the pride problem. At that time, the thought of becoming a Christian shattered my ego. I had just, I had just proved that all my previous thinking had been wrong. My friends had been right, but I couldn't let go of the problem. I had to do something before it drove me out of my mind. During my second year at this University of Michigan, I became a Christian. Some, somebody asked me, how do you know you, how do you know you become a Christian? There are several answers, but one was simple. It changed my life. It is this transformation that assures me of the validity of my conversion. That night, I prayed four things to establish a relationship with the resurrected living Christ, and I'm grateful that those prayers have been answered. First, I asked Jesus, and I th- to come into my heart, and I thanked him for dying on the cross. Secondly, I confessed those things in my life that are not pleasing to him and asked him to forgive me. God tells us that no matter how deep the stain of our sin is, he can remove it. He can make you as clean as fallen snow, Isaiah 118. The third thing I said right now, in the best way I know how, I opened the door of my heart and life and trust trusted him as my Savior, Lord and Savior. 
Take control of my life. Change me from the inside out. Make me the type of person you created me to be. The last thing I prayed for was to thank him for coming into my life by faith. It was, a, it was faith-based, not on ignorance, but on evidence, the facts of history and God's word. The change was not immediate, but it was real. Over 18 months, my life was changed. Once, cha- once change was relief, one change was relief from my restlessness. Another was a cooling of my bad temper. By the way, the, the name of the guy I'm referring to here was, uh, oh, I forgot, uh, Josh McDowell. How many of you have heard of Josh McDowell? That was his testimony when he was going through law school. Amen. Can we bow our heads this morning? Amen. You know, one of the things that I know is that there is a battle right now going on for our hearts and our lives. You know, it's possible to be in church. It's possible to know your Bible like Nicodemus. He was a scholar, but he didn't let go. He didn't believe. He didn't didn't believe that it was about an inward change, not just an outward change. It's not about just rituals, but it's about Jesus being allowed into your life It's about you saying, Lord, I accept the evidence of your death and burial and resurrection as being the sufficient, the sufficient sacrifice, the sufficient atonement for my salvation. Maybe this morning you may say, you know, Ray, I I have been in a battle and there's been challenges in my mind and my spirit and I know that there's been something that has been seeking me to pull me away from God, pull my heart away from the reality and the presence of what I know in my heart to be right. You see, Nicodemus knew in his heart that Jesus was from God, but he, at that time, didn't really come to allow the Lord to have his way in his life. This morning, I want to ask you, have you let Jesus, have you let Jesus, have you said yes to Jesus and his spirit? It's not just, not just some kind of an inclining or a, some kind of an intuition, but it's really the Holy Spirit drawing you. Have you yielded all to him? Jesus said that if any man Come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Believing is not just some mental assent or agreement, but it's really entering into a relationship where you're united with him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we make it our aim in this life to be well-pleasing to him. Every day I pray this prayer. I say, Lord, I want to live to please you. Do I always please him? No, I don't. But I do come back to the throne of grace for mercy in the time of need. And over time, he's changing us. But maybe this morning you have been resistant to the Holy Spirit. I feel so strongly that some this morning you've been in a battle a long time and you said, I can't say yes. I'm afraid to say yes to the Lord. I'm afraid that if I lose control, I will be disappointed. I want to tell you something. 
My Bible says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. He's a good father. Maybe this morning you may say, you know, Pastor Ray, I have never accepted Jesus like this. I've never known him. I was like Josh McDowell. I fought the Holy Spirit. I fought the Lord. I fought against him. But I know that he is real. And I know he loves me. But I failed to let him have access into all of my life. I even sense this morning there, there may be some that are struggling with some bitterness. Say, I won't forgive. Maybe it's an issue of addictive issues. I can't let go of certain things. You know, you can't serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. This morning, if that's you, why don't you raise your hand? If you'd like to know Jesus, anyone, okay? You've committed your life, okay? I take that maybe all of you are saved then. Can we stand to our feet then this morning? Amen. You bow your heads. Father, we thank you, Lord. Lord, you search the hearts and you know our ways, you know our thoughts. You know our uprisings. You know when we sit down. But Lord, we know that we are in a battle for our life. But Lord, as we surrender our will to believe your word, which means to become a follower and to trust you, Lord, you make all things new. You open our eyes to see the kingdom, which is righteousness, peace, and joy. I, I just pray that right now over your people. I just pray, Lord, the, the sense of your presence, your kingdom power in life, whether it's through conviction or, Lord, whether it's through a gentle hand of the wing, wooing of your spirit, I pray right now that we would be people that would always be sensitive and drawn close to you. We give you the highest praise. And everyone said, amen. Turn to someone and give them a hug this morning. God bless. We'll continue next week. If any of you like prayer, we'd love to pray for you down in front.